The following audio drama is rated R for rockin'. You can be sure that everything you wanted to see when you're a teenager is here. Just tantalizingly out of reach if you're under 17 or 18 years old. This is L. Elsie, writer, narrator, and producer of Harper Rose and the Women on the Wall. For this story, I tried to picture what a world after global warming would look like, and the research I did is woven into the Gospels of Gara, which are meant to stop global warming from happening a second time. I don't believe humans would go entirely extinct, and so in this story, which is set a thousand years in the future, humans are still around. But they are living in a society that, while it's very similar to ours, uh, still has marked differences, including laws that everyone has to follow that come from the gospel. Our protagonist is a young woman who worked as a deputy in a small outpost and was chosen to take over as sheriff when the old sheriff died. This is episode one, when she finds out that she was assigned to the most famous sheriff in the entire United Cities of America. Thank you for listening. She wants to cheer me. It's how she deals with my moods. But I'm too nervous to laugh. Two years as deputy, and now I'm supposed to be sheriff of the entire outpost? The words come out louder than I intend, rising among the tall trees enclosing the pasture, and I look away from Prudence, as if ashamed by the sound of my own voice. Wilson knew what he was doing. I'm sure it will be fine. Finally, I look into her eyes that are such a light blue, they look almost white, and are set very deeply in her wrinkled face. I hope so, I say. I just wish I hadn't been assigned to Sheriff Kane for my exam. Decorate it. Famous. Infamous among the law. It has crossed my mind the Wilson brothers hired him to scare me off. I'm sure he's just like every other sheriff out there. I snort at her, sounding more like my horse than a future sheriff. He served at the Constitute before he became the sheriff of New York. My voice sounds like I'm trying to sell her something. But Prudence just keeps looking at me with her tired, washed-out eyes, unimpressed as ever. And so I don't tell her of the time Ronan Kane took down the Boston Embowler, the New Haven Hangman, the New York City Lady Killer, how he's called in to help any time the local law senses something fishy, something strange about a case, how he is the master of figuring out the hardest cases, and how he always, always gets the bad guy. Because Prudence doesn't care about Ronan Kane. She's already thinking of the day I come back home to her and the horses. Gara observed the earth as the cycle reset. After a long hunger, a new era had begun. A time of prosperity and progress. She watched her children with pride as they invented many beautiful things. They used their heads and their hands and they made a spark, a bulb, a horse made of metal, and boxes that filled rooms with stories. But this beautiful world was off balance, and Gara could sense a great danger was coming. Gara set out to the world below to find out what the danger was. First, she searched the mountains and the dirt deep below, but there she found nothing. Then she dove into the caves and the hollows, and the lakes and the rivers, but again she could find no danger. 
Finally, she flew across the vast oceans, and this is where she found it, a molecule of which there were too many hovering above the sea. Gara closed her eyes and became one of them to feel what they were feeling, to understand why they were causing an imbalance in the world. As she transformed herself, she felt a great heat inside and an indescribable urge to dive into the ocean to cool herself. But there were too many of them, and no matter how hard she tried, she could not meet with the water surface. She felt as if the horrible heat would consume her, and so she gave up and returned to her perch in the sky. Gyra tried to find somewhere to put the molecule of which there were too many, but no such place existed. She could not fix this. She could not protect her children. All she could do was to send them warning signs so they could save themselves. Once the warnings had been sent, it would be her turn to pray to them. This has been your early morning gospel of Gyra, Alethra's one, The Years of Imbalance. May we tread lightly upon the earth today and every day henceforth. Today's the day. After the morning gospel, I roll onto my stomach and let my arm dangle off the side of the bed. Tired from the early hour and turning my lek box, which powers my wave box radio, I rest a moment. Then I rise. Today is the day. The letter is on my nightstand. I intend to take it with me in case anyone questions me on my journey. I get up quickly and pull on my pants and shirt that are draped across the stool in the corner from the day before. Then I spread the gray paste across my arms and ankles, cold and thick, and it blends into my olive skin, and the only way you can tell it's there is that slight smell of sulfur, which isn't pleasant, but neither is bug fever. I wrap the paste in its tin in a cloth and add the few things I will need for my journey. My lick box, my bulb, my identification card that matches the ink number on my wrist, my fishing rod, which I plan to strap to Moon's saddle, my second set of clothes, my holster, my knife, and briefly I consider bringing the bug net, but my destination is New York City. I'm assuming they'll have nets at the hotel. The door creaks as I shut it behind me and make my way through the wet field that spreads out from behind my small hut. Tall trees ring the clearing that leads to the back where the horses live. As I cross, the wet grass slides along the soles of my boots, leaving a trail behind me. Halfway across, a deer appears from behind a large oak and slowly makes its way over to me. I stop, and it bends to smell my knees, inhales deeply, then turns and bounds back into the forest. The stable is a rickety affair. Half the beams are bent or close to breaking. But neither Prudence nor I have taken the initiative to fix it up, and we both seem to be waiting for the other to take the lead. It will likely stay as it is now, with its splintered walls and drooping roof to the west, the green moss that clings to the door frames, until the pasture, and eventually the forest, lays its claim to it completely. I swing the front gate open and say a little prayer to Gara so that it may stay on its hinges. Moon whinnies quietly in greeting. Her nuzzle is warm as I let her smell the sulfur on my palms and I stroke her neck and her shoulder 
She's dark, dark brown, except for the white star on her forehead, which is more rounded than spiked, and the reason I named her Moon. Prudence's filly eyes me with skittish glances and moves to the back of the pen beside Moon's. I can hear Prudence as she makes her way to the stable, sound traveling effortlessly through the cracked walls of the barn. She's come to say goodbye. I let Moon out of her stall and stroke her back gently before lifting the saddle onto her and leading her outside. You're off early, Prudence says, looking at my packed bag. It's only a four-hour ride. I just wanted to get the lay of the land. I dig my booted toe into the mud. You nervous? Prudence tries to get me to look up at her, but I keep digging with my toes, letting water seep into the tiny holes I've made in the muck before me. Yes. Prudence can smell my lies over the sulfur, so I don't, and add, Not sure it should be me that's going. You know it is. Reproach in her voice, almost cold. I step into the holes, letting the muck suck around my boot. I suppose. Wilson's will was ironclad, and it was his choice, indisputably. She's about to make a stand, I can tell. But all I add is, not if you listen to anything the younger Wilson would have to say. At this, Prudence just laughs. They're mad they'll have to answer to you when you get back. The air is still cold, the sun barely up, and I inhale deeply. <sighs> they think he went crazy before he died, and that he was crazy when he wrote me and as the new sheriff. Old Wilson was a lot of things, but he wasn't crazy. The older woman steps closer to me, the blanket around her shoulders like a cape. Besides, those two sons of his, they're not exactly bright. I've met bricks smarter than both. She wants to cheer me. It's how she deals with my moods. But I'm too nervous to laugh. Two years as deputy, and now I'm supposed to be sheriff of the entire outpost? The words come out louder than I intend, rising among the tall trees enclosing the pasture, and I look away from Prudence, as if ashamed by the sound of my own voice. Wilson knew what he was doing. I'm sure it will be fine. Finally, I look into her eyes that are such a light blue, they look almost white, and are set very deeply in her wrinkled face. I hope so, I say. I just wish I hadn't been assigned to Sheriff Kane for my exam. Decorate it. Famous. Infamous among the law. It has crossed my mind the Wilson brothers hired him to scare me off. I'm sure he's just like every other sheriff out there. I snort at her, sounding more like my horse than a future sheriff. He served at the Constitute before he became the sheriff of New York. My voice sounds like I'm trying to sell her something, but Prudence just keeps looking at me with her tired, washed-out eyes, unimpressed as ever. And so I don't tell her of the time Ronan Kane took down the Boston Embowler, the New Haven Hangman, the New York City lady killer, how he's called in to help any time the local law senses something fishy, something strange about a case, how he is the master of figuring out the hardest cases, and how he always, always gets the bad guy. Because Prudence doesn't care about Ronan Kane. She's already thinking of the day I come back home to her and the horses. Well, it's only two weeks, which he should be grateful to spend with you, 
and then you'll be back here, protecting us. And don't let Wilson's kids get to you when you're in charge. I'll be back only if Kane sees me fit. Prudence says nothing for a moment. Then, quietly, I will never trust you near my kitchen, nor near my garden. But my life, I trust you with that. And that is why Wilson chose you and not those two idiot sons of his. Now get out of here and become a sheriff before you change your mind. I can tell she's about to cry. It's always been like this. She's always made me leave right before the flood. She also knows I'll turn around at the last moment and catch her anyway. It's always been like that, too. Ever since my mother disappeared and dumped me at her door and made prudence my prudence. Oh, before I forget. She digs through her back pocket, eyes already watering, and hands me a small black square, and I look at her in puzzlement. What's this for? I ask, but all she says is, the city, and takes a step back, inviting me to leave quickly now. I strap my fishing rod to Moon's saddle and walk her across the muddy yard out past my hut and past Prudence's hut. Then I get on and start off down the road, turning around at the edge of the yard to see Prudence with her face buried in her hands. The ride is nice, but unfamiliar. I've only come this way once before. I take the horse along the water for as long as I can, the smell of the ocean making it feel more like home. But soon the water is hugging the tree trunks, and I'm forced to find the path in the forest. It's narrow, and I slow my pace. The shade of it feels nice, and the air smells sweet from the wet ground. Moon and I tread on for another half hour before the path widens. Stalford, far behind us now. The reality of the task ahead, my two-week training program, is setting in. Waves of panic shoot through me as I gently bounce in my saddle. Fresh tracks from that morning, someone riding in the same direction as us, are stamped into the dirt ahead. I lean forward, letting my chest rest on Moon's neck, and she grunts at me, and I sit back up. The forest is silent except for hooves crunching against tiny rocks mixed into the forest floor, her breathing and my breathing that sounds like a child, scared in the dark. The road forks and we keep left, but I can still see the clearing that was made for the large building that spreads out to the right. Half of it is used to house the prisoners, the other half for the guards who live there. In front of the guards' building, ahead on our right, a man is sitting outside, listening to his wave box. He holds up his right hand in greeting, while continuing to churn his lek box with his left. I return the gesture, but don't slow as more and more trees start to separate us and the prison. A few paces to the man's left, three other guards are engaged in some sort of game that involves throwing rocks at a dead bush, causing lively debate about which throw is valid and which one is not. I can't help but wonder if they always wear their green uniforms, even when they go to sleep. Cubics change hands, and another several rocks fly through the air, landing heavily into the dead branches, making them crack loudly. The man with his wave box doesn't seem bothered by the game, just looks straight ahead, intent on the words his wave box is making. It's the second replay of the gospel.
his listening a sign of deep devotion. I turn away to face back at the road, trying to focus ahead. When I was last here, I made it all the way to the room where you sit down to wait. You wait there, in a dingy room, and they bring in the prisoners, one by one. Everyone waiting gets their own small, square table and two stools. One for you, and one for the person you've come to see. That day it was four of us, sitting nervously, watching the door like anxious deer. My father was not the first to emerge, and by the time he did, my stool was empty. The first man they brought in looked so bad, so ragged, so thin. His skin was wrinkled into tiny folds like he was shriveling up into himself. I gasped when that man came in, and his wife or girlfriend or whoever she was gave me a dirty look. But I didn't care. I stood and left the same way I'd come in, and then I never went back. I stopped opening the letters my father sent me, filled with nothing but apologies. The murmuring of the wave box starts to fade as I drift deeper into the forest. Moon whinnies like she's excited for the adventure ahead, and I'm glad one of us is. After another hour, the path comes to a clearing that leads down to the beach, and I lead Moon to the sea and breathe deeply. Then I lead her back up and let her drink from a small stream before we ride on. We pass through the New York Narrow before noon, and after we pass through, I let my boots fall to the ground to walk Moon towards the hotel where I'm staying for the duration of my sheriff's exam. The city is noxious, smells of rot I'd never before imagined, and I pull the black square Prudence gave me up over my mouth and nose. There are people everywhere, walking around the streets, and I stare at them in amazement because I've never seen so many stream down streets like that. Some are dressed very neatly, and some are dressed like me, and none of them seem to be bothered by the horrible stink. Breathing through my mouth, I make my way to the left of the park, to where the eastern quarter lies, and find my hotel, the Ambassador, located on the fourth street from the park. The hotel is built in a strange dimension, and appears to be standing on stilts. Its windows float one above the other, though all the other houses around it appear normal. I tie Moon up outside and walk in to lay claim. The young woman at the front desk looks at me strangely as I tell her my name, my reason for being here. Halfway through, I notice the black cloth still covering my face, moving with my words. Deputy Rose, she looks down at her records. You are in room 209. My mouth drops open and my chin protrudes from under the black square. You have over two hundred rooms? I try to imagine how small the rooms must be to allow for this, and how to get out of the situation as politely as possible. The woman begins to laugh. No, you're on the second floor. Room number nine on the second floor. She waves her arms by her sides, as if this will help me understand. I nod slowly, but she can tell I'm still unsure. Wait right here. I will have Jin Lee show you the way. I nod again, once, giving my approval. She disappears through a door to her left and returns with a man whose forehead meets my breastbone. 
He is chewing something and seems annoyed by the interruption of his meal. The smell of fish and dark berries penetrates the cloth covering my face as he gets closer and swiftly passes by me. Come with me, he says gruffly, and I follow him, forced to hustle as he tears down the hall with the large key in hand. His words match his steps, and I have to walk quickly to keep up as we go down to the end of the building and then turn to face something that looks like a broken wall leading up. Jinli doesn't slow down, and so I go after him, testing the leaning jagged wall with my weight by gently bouncing up and down a few times. Seems sturdy. I can still hear Jinli as he leads the way and I hurry to catch up. Your horse will be boarded for free, but feed will be added to your bill at the end of your stay. Gregory is our barn hand, and you can ask him for anything concerning the horse. You can also take your horse out at any time, just don't go trial riding other... I've made it to the top, and see he has stopped at one of the doors that lines the long corridor, the key already plunged into its hole, when he realizes I am lagging behind. What are you doing? He raises his arms in despair, then cocks his head. You've never used stairs before, have you? I've seen this before. Once. He adds and furrows his brow, as if my situation is some sort of disease and should be avoided. I stick one foot out in front of me and press down gently to test if the indoor roof will bear my weight. It's fine, gently assures me and sighs in exasperation. I edge my way closer to him, half on tiptoe, as he opens my door and begins talking again. There's a bathing river about five minutes' walk time to the east. Uh, there's plenty of fish in the river, but we do serve breakfast an hour before and after sunrise. You can decide for yourself what you want to do. There is a pub across the street that is rather popular, mostly because it's the only pub in all of Eastern Quarter. And let's face it, Western Quarter pubs are, well... He waves his hands, as if that quarter smells even worse than the one we're in. Please let me know if you need anything else. Then he stands still all of a sudden and looks at me. You have bug nets? I say by way of conversation gesturing towards the bed. Yes, we also have a wave box to every room, as well as a closet for your... clothes? It sounds like a question, as he looks me over and notices that I'm not carrying much, and not commenting on my face that is still covered by my black square. Anyway. He stands again, looking at me as if waiting for something else to happen. I look back at him, until he finally bounces on his heels as if to restart his gears, and says, I'll get your horse squared away. Again, if you need anything else, let Ilsa at the front desk know. I watch him go. What a strange little man. Then I start testing out the room. The bed is something out of this world, and I roll around on it, like Moon does when I give her fresh dried grass. Then I force myself to get up. It's so comfortable, I don't trust myself not to fall asleep. There are two large windows that look out to the south side. I open one of them and lean out so I can see all of the dirty swamp that stretches out from the tip of New York. A large river curls along the embankment to the east, and it's met at most turns by springs that seem to originate from everywhere within the porous mud that covers most of the island. I look down at the street below and see the bar Jinli spoke of and watch the people milling about.
Some of them are very drunk, and all of them appear dirty. It's a little bit of a dump, I think. I let myself sink into the bed one more time. Then I removed my light bulb and lack box from my satchel and locked the door behind me before I set off to the street below. I climbed back down the so-called stairs quickly, feigning practice steps. When I reached the bottom, the woman who told me which room was mine, Ilsa, has disappeared, and there is no sign of Jinli. The journey has made me feel uncomfortable in my clothes, so I set out to the bathing river to the east. As I pass other people on the street, I nod at them like I do back home, but they return my kindness with disturbed looks, and I stop nodding at the strangers and take this as my first lesson I'm glad to have learned. When I get down to the river, I'm the only one there to bathe, probably due to the late time of day. There are spots of green along the river bank in the form of a few sad-looking bushes and sparse oaks. Not wasting any time, I remove my clothing and my satchel, leaving them under a bush with bright-petaled flowers. I tie one of the ropes secured to one of the sad-looking trees around my waist and wade out into the river that is flowing gently from north to south. The water feels good and refreshingly cold under the afternoon sun. Fish brush up against my feet and my ankles, and I take Jinli to be a snob, but not a liar. As I bob in the water, kicking to keep the rope at an even toe from shore, some of my apprehension about this new place is washed off with the dirt and grime and floats down the river. After a little while, a man comes out and takes the rope most removed from mine before stripping rapidly and moving into the river as if he is on fire. I wave to him with a faint smile, but the man looks at me strangely and then grabs hold of his rope in such a way that he no longer has to face me before rubbing wildly out his skin. His unfriendliness makes me weary, and I pull myself along the rope back to shore and dress, even though I am still soaking wet. My pants cling to my legs, and my white shirt becomes ghost-like from the water on my skin. The man doesn't turn around as I grab my satchel, sink my feet into my boots, and grab my holster. Wrapping it around my hips, I make my way back. I wander around the city, feeling unwanted and unknowing of worldly things all over again. As I walk aimlessly, there is a shot of rain, and within two minutes, everyone is as sad and soaked as myself, and I take this as a good sign. After the rain subsides, I head back towards the hotel. When I turn down the street, I feel that I have deserved a drink and make my way into the bar across from the hotel. The name of the place is painted in large black letters above the lined-up bottles of the bar, Fanny and Jack's. A wiry woman is running from one end of the bar to the other, filling drinks at uncanny speed. As I get closer, she looks me up and down, her eyes hovering at my holstered hip, and then sets a large glass in front of me onto the bar. "'You look like you could use our special. Only two cubics a mug.' "'Sure.' I jostle my satchel and hear the coins clink. I sit down, and a few seconds later, my glass is filled with a frothy beer, the color of which has a tinge of crimson. In order to drink, I pull the black square down around my neck. To my surprise, I can no longer smell a difference, and so I leave the square tied below my chin. The beer smells sweet, like flowers, and something else. 
I take a large drink. It's better than the bed. What's in this? I tap the side of the glass, smiling at the woman in appreciation. She points to the names on the wall. I'm Fanny, but that stuff is Jack's new invention, and I have no idea what he puts in it, but it's selling faster than he can brew it. She laughs like she's just found money on the floor, shrugs, and moves to fill more glasses. Then I sit, watching Fanny fill glasses just as fast as people seem to be drinking the stuff, and start listening in on conversations as they drift over me. I'm part of this room, but not part of this place. But for short snippets, I pretend to be part of the stories of who had a baby and how much tax it cost them, of who got caught stealing from their neighbor's barn, of who crossed into the forbidden zone and hasn't been seen since. As I sit there, immersed in one and then the next tale, I realize people in New York aren't very different from the people that live in Stalford. Just as I place my two cubics onto the bar, readying myself to go, a man, slightly hunched and smelling of too much drink, sidles up beside me. You aren't from around here, are you? No, I reply. You law or something? He leers down at the gun tucked into my holster. Yes, I tell him, as if this was a real question, and take a step back to dissuade him from further talk. I see. Can I buy you a drink? He smiles at me, and I can't help but think that he has very tall teeth for being such a hunched little man. I'm leaving, actually. But it's still early. The man's smile freezes into a sneer. You aren't too good for me, are you, Sheriff? He holds the word sheriff in his cheeks like it's venom and like he's ready to spit it back out at me, and while I'm distracted and staring at his angry cheeks, he moves quickly and manages to unlatch my holster and take my gun. His cheeks are still puffed as he raises the gun to my chest. One moment, the bar is still raucous with talk, and a drunk in the corner singing something about beasts in the woods. In the next, a dead silence falls all at once and everyone is staring at the man, and at me. With the silence, a deep calm befalls me, like it always does in these situations. The man hasn't pulled the hammer back, and he's clearly never held a gun before in his life. His hand is shaking, and the barrel bounces up and down, like he's asked her to dance. You have five seconds. I smile, then tilt my head towards the bar. Put it down and I will finish the last of my drink here and be on my way, and we can forget this whole ordeal happened. The man's grimace widens, dark red gums to hold his long fangs in place. The seconds count down in my head, but I can tell the man isn't going to give up my weapon. You think you're something special because you're law? You're just a... Time's up. His temple is the first thing to make contact with the bar's hard surface. The gun drops to the floor, but I ignore it, grab the back of his neck, and smash his mouth into the edge of the counter. There's a faint crunching sound, and I'm fairly sure I've adjusted his teeth to fit his posture. He's howling loudly as I bend to pick my weapon up off the dirty floor, but the sound of me cocking and aiming the gun, steadily, I may add, at his head, and without smiling, makes him cover his mouth to stifle his cries. 
Blood spills from in between his fingers, and his eyes widen as he stares down the barrel, and then he runs out into the street, one long wail echoing out behind him before the door is shut with a loud bang. Another moment passes in silence, then the place returns to rock his conversation. The drunk in the corner resumes his song, and now it's about the sheriff who beat a man for stealing her gun. You all right? Fanny appears before me out of thin air. Yes, I'm fine. I tip my head back and finish the last of my beer. You really didn't want him to buy you a drink, huh? I did not. I say and set the empty mug down. Sorry if I messed up your floor. I eye the red mess leading from the stool to the door, and I pull two more cubics out of my bag and place them onto the counter. Now I owe you a beer, Fanny says and pockets the money. Maybe next time. I secure my holster and turn to leave. Outside, the air is thick and warm, even though the sun has begun to set. I make my way towards the stables and jump over the small gate so I don't disturb the other horses. I find Moon, and she's glad to see me, and I am glad to see her. The smells of the barn blocks out the smells of the city I've already grown accustomed to, and I lie next to her in the warm softness of her hay bed and let her steadfast breathing steady mine until I grow calm and tired. Good night. I whisper against her giant head, and she nuzzles my mouth that smells of sweet drink, and I go back out onto the street and to the hotel. Once inside my room, I slip beneath the bug net and spread out on the bed, too tired to kick off my boots. Despite my exhaustion, thoughts of Moon alone in the barn get in the way of sleep. Then thoughts about the man at the bar, his bloodied face. Then thoughts of hurt in general. Finally, my mind quiets enough to drift off. But in my restless sleep, I dream of Ronan Kane. And in the dream, I fail to become a sheriff a hundred times over. Instead of a verdict on my passing or failing, Cain stands with his back to me, and instead of a verdict, he tells me that I am the daughter he should have never had, the daughter that he should have killed at birth. And every time, right before it starts all over again, with me riding through the New York Narrow and finding a heavenly bed to sleep in, he turns to me, and it's not Ronan Cain at all, but my father.